Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you, as always, by ZipRecruiter. You know what's smart? Getting Bob Arum on a podcast. The dude's 87 and has a million quadrillion stories, and you're going to hear a lot of them coming up in one second. You know what else is smart? Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash BS to hire the right people for your business. Their technology identifies people with the right skills for your job, actively invites them to apply. You get qualified candidates fast. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Meanwhile, State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000, a huge number. It's not really about the number. It's about having a real person who's nearby, someone you can talk to and get personalized help protecting what matters most. Combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance is easy. With the help of a real State Farm agent, go to statefarm.com slash agent to find an agent today. We're also brought to you by theringer.com, the world's greatest website, as well as the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find something like 25 of our podcasts, uh, something for everybody, sports, pop culture, movies, TV, music, whatever you need, we have it. Uh, check that out. Go to theringer.com. Coming up, we are going to talk to the legendary boxing promoter, Bob Arum, who I've never had on a podcast before and um, had always wanted to do it. And he came in two weeks ago and it's, <laughs> it's really something. Uh, so that's coming up first. Our friends from Pearl Jam. All right, what an honor, Bob Arum. I always felt when I was a kid I had to choose between you and Don King, and I always chose you. Well, I don't know I what would, it was. I, I'm, I'm certainly the more congenial guy, right? Yeah, I just, I gravitated. <laughs> I made the right pick, I felt like. You had more fighters that I liked. Yeah. and You uh, had all my dudes. You had Hagler. Hagler, and uh, did a lot of Sugar Ray's fights. And Tommy Hearns and Duran. But uh, Marvin was my guy. I really... I really loved Marvin, and he uh, uh, was, uh, you know, the epitome of a hardworking, no-nonsense fighter. Yeah. Let's go backwards. So I was, I try not to research the guests too much, but I wanted to make sure I had some facts right. And uh, you were, you, you were a lawyer before you got into boxing. Yeah, right. I and was, you got heavily involved. You with the, your firm was doing the forward for the Warren Commission, and you th threw yourself into the JFK assassination, yeah. which is one of my passion projects. Yeah, but you know that, but that isn't why I got involved in boxing. No, no, no. I just I want to talk I, about JFK. I was yeah. After I had served in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was the head of the tax division for the Southern District of New York. Yeah. And I handled a case where we seized the funds from the Patterson-Liston fight, the first one. Huge amount of money for then, for that time. Yeah. And uh, after the president was uh, assassinated uh, and uh, 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 Bobby left the Justice Department, uh, I uh, left uh, in 1965 and joined the Louis Neiser firm in New York, and uh, uh, at that point, the Warren Commission had put out a uh, report 
on the assassination. Uh, and uh, Doubleday uh, commissioned Neiser uh, to write the foreword for the report for, you know, their, their version yeah. of the, they were selling it. Uh, the report was, of course, a public document. And I was assigned by Neiser the task of researching it and critiquing it. And uh, so, in effect, I wrote most of the foreword to that report in the Doubleday edition, publishing the report. And there's no internet back then. So what are you, like in the public library, just reading everything possible? How were you even researching it? Well, you researched, first of all, you read the report. Yeah. And there was extensive exhibits. And uh, in essence, uh, you, you, you did your research based on the Warren Commission findings. But I didn't and, trust the Warren Commission's what? findings. I didn't 100% trust it. Well, I, I see, I disagree. I think that I think they did a good job and they did a uh, uh, they tried to learn as much as possible. But there was such machinations going on at that time. Yeah, uh, there were you know, there were a number of ways it could go. Uh, uh, the president, uh, John Kennedy, was engaged with these plots uh, to kill Castro. Yes. And Castro, uh, you know, was answering back. So there was the, the idea that maybe um, uh, the assassin. Uh, Oswald. Yeah. Was um, uh, in the pay or under the control of uh, Castro. And he had uh, uh, spent time in the Soviet Union uh, a couple of years, and he had married a Russian woman. And he was in Cuba, too. And he was in Cuba, too. And they had had reports that he had been in the consulate, Cuban consulate. Now, on the other hand, there was also the, uh, the theory uh, that he was working for the mob. Uh, because the mob felt betrayed uh, by uh, President Kennedy because the mob had supported uh, Kennedy when he ran against Nixon for president. And there was allegations that the mob had helped uh, fix the vote in Illinois. I think there were more than allegations. Well, whatever it is, <laughs> whatever it is. And, uh, and then... Uh, uh, the president appointed his brother, Bobby, uh, the attorney general, and he went after the mob. And so they felt betrayed. And there was also Kennedy and the mob, the mob boss's mistress might have, might well, have been sharing Jay, the mistress yeah, for yeah, a little bit. Yeah, well, that, 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 that is true. But I don't, you know, Jack, the president had so many mistresses yeah. Yeah. that it wasn't like he was hot on one woman. <laughs> true. It was like, I mean, I remember as an assistant U.S. attorney walking with the FBI guys in Manhattan on Central Park South, and they showed me the apartment where the president, when he was in New York, would bring his girls. He was, yeah. a, he was, he would, you know, I mean, anything that came after were guys who were like sort of uh, uh, considered how great Kennedy was, and they wanted to follow in his footsteps, yeah. including President Clinton. You know? <laughs> right? It was great for Kennedy. Why isn't it good for me? Right? 
So it in any in any event, that was uh, and and as evidence that maybe the mob had something to do with uh, with uh, uh, the assassin and um, uh, and uh, uh, the assassination. Uh, so people thought. Maybe Oswald. You thought it was a single assassin. Yeah, I think I, I thought, think there was enough proof that there was a that this guy was a really good shot, and I don't buy the thing that it was a cheap Italian rifle. I think he he he. I I was convinced that yeah, it was it was uh, out of, but he was on his own. I really believe that he did it by himself. Now the reason that there was suspicion that the mob was behind it that cast that he was that uh, he was working for the mob was the Jack Ruby thing yes i mean how does a guy like ruby who's mob connected is running a strip club yeah uh in dallas how does he suddenly show up in the police precinct when they're bringing Oswald out right. and shooting him. I mean, come on. He, I, he was outraged because, <laughs> uh, I mean, give me a break. Yeah. So there was that connection. That's why I, I really accepted the Warren Commission report regarding the shooting, that Oswald was the lone shooter. The I'm still not convinced that uh, as to... Who put Oswald up to it? Now, I must say that I really have always believed uh, that the uh, policy of the United States towards Cuba, uh, I really believe that it would last as long as Castro was alive because that the government had evidence that Castro was behind the assassination. So it was a little retaliation. Yeah. The autopsy, all that stuff, and then the Zapruder film, which was clearly like they did something to it. Those are the, those are my two red flags. With I don't believe they did person. anything to it. That's nonsense. Man, there's, there were some Come frames on. missing. Come on, let's stick to the facts. Some frames were missing. Let's stick to the Where facts. Where did it go for two years? I don't know. I, I mean- uh, again, it's many years ago, and my memory isn't what it once was. Your memory was. is amazing, though. You're 87. You remember yeah. all this stuff. Yeah, we right. had lunch a few weeks ago, and you we, you got to tell the Snake Canyon story in a little bit. But I want to go from, how did you actually get into boxing? Give me the one-minute version. Because you're this lawyer. You go to Harvard Law School. You're on this path to, I'm, I'm sure, to be all some right. high-powered so, attorney, and all of a sudden you're a boxing promoter. So as I said, I uh, handled the seizure of all the funds of the Patterson-Liston fight. And the reason I think pretty much that Bobby, uh, the, my immediate, my boss, the, the attorney general, was so anxious uh, to intercede was because Roy Cohn, who he hated, yeah. uh, was the promoter of that fight. And he had evidence that Cohn was going to take the money, put it over to Sweden and pay, uh, pay Patterson on a deferred payment basis, which you couldn't do at the time. Right. So on that basis, we seized all the funds, about $5 million, which was a lot of money then. Yeah. And uh, uh, I took Cohn's deposition for 10 days. I mean, I learned everything about the boxing business. And uh, he was an interesting guy to question. 
And uh, I just kept him going. And when I left in uh, 1965 and went with the Nizer firm, a company that was televising boxing yeah. on a closed circuit basis, hired the firm, hired me uh, to represent them. And they were doing a fight, uh, Ernie Terrell and George Chavallo from Canada, and they were doing no business. So they asked me what I could suggest to do some business. And this was 1965, and there had never been a black person who had been uh, a commentator on any sports show, any news show, in ever. So I said, let's get a black guy and make him part of the commentating team. And they said, what a great idea. So I went, he said, you do it. So I went Millie, Willie Mays. He didn't want any part of it. And a friend of mine uh, uh, was the attorney. Uh, he was from Manhasset, Long Island. And he was the guy who had was representing Jim Brown. And he was the guy who was responsible for Jim going to Syracuse University. And he told me, I think Jim would be interested in doing this. Jim Brown, the greatest football greatest player Greatest football player of all time. And this was his ninth year. Yeah. It was during the season. And uh, so we retained Brown to be part of the commentating team for $500. There was, you know, that yeah. was the fee. And <laughs> I, I'll never forget it. <laughs> I remember it. the figures. I, well, I, I remember a lot of stuff about that because <laughs> the, because it shaped my life. Yeah. Because the fights then that were on closed circuit were Terrell Chevalo were on a Monday night and the football game was a Sunday. And I remember Jim, uh, Cleveland was playing Minnesota and Jim hadn't done well that day. They had beaten him up uh, and he dragged his ass up to Toronto where the fight was and uh, uh, asked for me because I hadn't met him before. And we became really good friends. And after the fight, he said to me, you know, you shouldn't be the lawyer for these guys. You should be the promoter. And I said, well, Jim, I'm, I never really saw a boxing match, and I'm, I have no interest in boxing. And there's only one guy that means anything, and that's Cassius Clay. And he said, well, I'll set up a meeting with you uh, to meet Muhammad Ali. Uh, and I thought it was just talk. But two months later, he set up a meeting, and I became uh, the lawyer and promoter for Muhammad Ali after being sent out to Chicago for the the approval of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I was going to say, that was right when Ali was knee-deep and he had everybody around him. He was changing his name. He had the Nation oh, of Islam. Oh, right, right. And this Not was a lot of white people probably in the room, I'm guessing. There were, there were very few white people. But again, I must say that from the time I got the approval of Elijah Muhammad, and I became Ali's promoter and lawyer. These people in the Nation of Islam couldn't have treated me better. Yeah, they had my back, and it, it was—I uh, mean, Jim told me about six months into the the arrangement that he said, "You're a white guy, and you have more influence with these people than I do." <laughs> but then Ali has the exile. Well, what so happened? So you get into boxing, well, and then he can't well, fight anymore. Well, you see, that's why I stayed in. 
I thought it would be fun to promote an Ali fight. And I was only going to do one fight. And the fight was going to be Ali and Terrell. And it had to be in Chicago. That was part of the deal. And then when Ali was training for the fight, uh, the selective service reclassified him for one, from 1Y one to 1A. 1Y was not eligible because Ali at that point was functionally illiterate. Yeah. Couldn't read or write. So he couldn't pass any tests, really. But they reclassified him 1A and they interviewed him before we could get to him. And that's when he said that he wasn't going to go into the army, wasn't going to fight the Viet Cong. They had never called him the N-word. Yeah. And uh, and then this shit hit the fan. Uh, Daly, the original mayor of Chicago, uh, got the Illinois Commission to throw us out. Uh, I got out them to grant a reprieve and have Ali come in and try to fix everything. And Ali made everything worse. Uh, so we got kicked out of Chicago. We got kicked out of the United States. We ended up in Toronto, uh, which is another story. Good publicity for that fight. And then Terrell, yeah, and then Terrell, Terrell dropped out. Shit. Terrell dropped out because the American Legion and their wisdom uh, threatened to boycott, uh, to strike, the petition strike protest uh, all the closed circuit locations showing the fight. So that that's where the m money came from. So Shavalo, who Terrell had beaten, stepped in from, and that was my first fight. And then I got Ali. I was really pissed off at that point. And I got Ali and we went to England and did two fights in England and then Germany. And then I got a call from Judge Hoffines in Houston, Texas. And he said, you bring him down here. I'll protect you. Which oh, it's he Cleveland did. Williams? And he fought Cleveland Williams. Oh. And then he fought Ernie Terrell. And then he those fought- are the two the, Those are the two best, if you, want, if you want to make the case, Ali was the greatest ever. Watch those two fights. The unbelievable performance. All time. Unbelievable performance. The, the Cleveland Williams backstory on that fight is something special, but I don't think I should do it on well, the I remember, podcast. I remember he had a bullet in his- by, in his yes, body, right? Yes, yeah. And he had uh, a U Benbo was his <laughs> manager. I mean, it was a wild thing. And it was Texas. But Judge Hoffines, Roy Hoffines, was quite a man. And uh, we did big numbers for both of those fights. And then Ali came back to New York, came to New York, Ford Zora Foley. And that's when they actually brought the... the that it went to trial. They convicted him yeah. for avoiding the draft. And uh, uh, he was sentenced uh, uh, to prison, which was suspended pending appeal. Uh, and uh, five years, people don't realize that. And he, we, he appealed, we appealed to the circuit court, appeal denied. And then the question was, would the Supreme Court hear the case? Because the Supreme Court that type of case, the four judges had to agree to hear the case in order for the case to proceed. And Thurgood Marshall had to recuse himself because he had been uh, the solicitor general. Yeah. And uh, so the eight judges, four, we had to have four to agree to hear the case. And the original vote was uh, 
seven to one against hearing the case. And the law clerks who uh, were uh, really studied what had happened to Ali, they convinced the, these judges who were obviously of a different generation that Ali had been unfairly treated and the judges agreed to hear the case and Ali uh, had his conviction reversed eight to nothing, uh, which... Uh, but he lost three and a half years. And he, but he lost three and a half years. What were you uh, doing for money during all of this? What? What were you doing for money? Well, I, I, I you know, I was were a lawyer. you lo- doing I, other, other I was fights a lawyer. you doing lawyer? No, wow. I, well, I did a, uh, uh, ABC had me do uh, a heavyweight tournament uh, to um, uh, find a temporary successor with Jimmy Ellis won that tournament. Right. And, uh, and I also, I was a lawyer, so I practiced security law, practiced tax law. You know, I did what I what I was supposed to do. So you never thought at that point, boxing's going to become my life. It still Absol- wasn't on the horizon. Absolutely not. I was fascinated with it at that time. But it really, you know, the truth is, I knew so little about the sport of boxing that it took me a while to realize that there was any division other than the heavyweight division. You didn't know there were 10, 12 other ones. Because we used to do undercards. It was all heavyweights. How, when you got into boxing, how crooked was it? Well, it like, was. Like, it, what, how involved was the mob? How involved were was fight fixing, all that stuff? Interesting, interesting. Because the mob had been in complete control of the sport. When Ali uh, won the title, and changed his name, and his connection with uh, the Nation of Islam came out. And then when I came in as his promoter and lawyer, being a Justice Department guy, the word went out to all the mob guys, stay away because you'd either run into these crazy guys with the Nation of Islam and there'd be physical confrontation, a lot of a lot of angst, or this son of a bitch who had been in the Justice Department yeah, he'll mess was with you spying too. on you to 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 put you in jail. Were you worried about your safety? No, nah, I never worried about my safety. I never worried about my safety. And indeed, I wasn't threatened at all. The only time I've ever been threatened. You want to hear the story? Yeah. Okay. Funny story. I mean, funny in retrospect. <laughs> I get a call from an assistant United States attorney who I knew because I had been in the office and so forth. And he said, uh, uh, Bob, I have to tell you this on the this section of the law because we have information uh, that you are in danger of imminent bodily harm or you could even be killed uh, because we got that information. We have to pass it on to you. I said, okay, thanks. Who? Who's threatening me? We're not allowed to tell you. I said, you idiot. You call me up. You get me all worked up and yeah. so forth. And so I had somebody go to a lawyer 
who represented uh, mob guys. Uh, and I had found prior to that point, I had thought maybe it was a couple of guys in boxing, this, that, and the other thing. I knew a guy at the FBI, and I asked him, and he wouldn't tell me, but he indicated to me that it was Don King. So I went to this lawyer who went down to Florida, talked to mob guys. Now, King was in with the mob because they had financed him in a couple of ventures, and he owed them a lot of money. And uh, the lawyer came back, and he said to me that everything is okay. You don't have to worry. King has been told that if you step off the sidewalk, because I lived in New York, and you get hit by a bus, he is dead, <laughs> right? And he will call you, right, to, to tell you. So an hour later, I get a call from King. Ha, 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 why would I try to kill you and so forth <laughs> and so on. Anyway, that was the only time that I've ever been threatened if you call that a threat. So you don't even know 100% happened. sure if it happened, but it might have happened. Well, I was sure the threat. that he had made the threat, but I don't know how, yeah, sincere how serious it was. he was in making that threat. Yeah. Do you think the Ali's list and second fight was was fixed? That was well, before your time. I w it was before my time. and uh, uh, But I talked about it a lot with the Ali camp and everybody. And what came through to me, whether it's true or not, was Liston was a coward. Yeah. Liston was a bully and a coward. So a bully, you know, if you get the best of him, will back down. Yeah. Like he quit in the first fight. He did. Yeah. And in the second fight, uh, Ali threw that punch and it was a grazing punch. It did hit him, but it was nothing punch. And he went down. And then he started flapping around and like a flapping fish. around. And Ali, well, Ali, you know, instead of going to the corner, was running around, get up, get up, get up. And uh, uh, Liston punked out. But was there any nefarious? The answer, I don't. I think not. But I'm not sure. Again, as you said, I wasn't around then. I came in afterwards. Yeah. Because then after that, he fought Floyd Patterson. And then I came into the picture. Let's take a break to talk about Belvedere. Produced in one of the world's longest running distilleries, Belvedere Vodka is the world's finest all-natural vodka, part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition. Belvedere is made with non-GMO Polish rye, pure water, no additives, recognized for quality, Belvedere. Named the ISC World Vodka Producer of the Year in 2015, 2016, and 2017. I'm sure at All-Star Weekend this weekend in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I am right now, I'm sure the Belvedere will be very available. And I'm sure I will have some. Probably with a soda, soda water, maybe splash of lime, maybe a little... A little tiny bit of cranberry in there. Just give it a little, little sugar pump. Enjoy a delicious cocktail with Belvedere Vodka today. And remember to always drink responsibly. Back to Bob Aram. When boxing really started to take off in the 70s because of 
TV and closed circuit. And they just kind of figured out the mechanics of how to promote a fight, how to sell it, how to have a lot of people see it. Wild World of Sports became so crucial for Ali. Um, did, did you feel like post-Ali we were going to be all right? Because remember, that was the big fear in like 76, 77. What happens not, after Ali? Not really. Not really. Look, you got to get the perspective. There hadn't been any boxing on television, on network television, for about 10 years after the Kifauva hearings, which exposed the corruption, yeah, the mob connection in boxing. So it had been banned, in effect. And the Griffith fight, that didn't help either when somebody died in the ring, right? It, with Perrette, yeah. yeah. I mean, but but again, it was really the mob connection. Okay. All right. So when I brought Ali over to England, the fight was on a Saturday night, which was Saturday afternoon in the United States. And Rue Knowledge, who was a great visionary, was the head of ABC Sports, called us and he said, look, and we want to televise this fight on Wide World of Sports. And it fights in England in the evening. It's the afternoon in the United States. Perfect for Wide World of Sports. And I think he paid us $50,000, a lot of money then, because yeah. this was the beginning of satellite technology. You can get the picture over. And uh, uh, the rating went through the roof. So the next fight, when he fought Brian London in England, they raised the rights fee to 100. And then when he fought Mildenberger in Frankfurt a few months later, uh, the rights fee was 200. And that was the start of the fact that, hey, boxing appeals to people, Ali appeal, it could really rate. And boxing started making a comeback then. But the comeback really came in 1976 when the Olympics were held in Montreal. Mm. And we That was my team. I watched that entire Olympics. Right. And we had that we had that great, great US boxing team with Sugar Ray Leonard, Howard Davis, the Sphinx brothers, uh, Leah Randolph, John Tate. We won Five gold medals in when that. Somebody Olympic got year. screwed. We should have won six. No, I think didn't didn't somebody should have there there was five, but there's almost there could have been. I don't six. remember that. I, I I remember five. I know I know Tate got beat, but uh, he got a, a bronze medal. Uh so uh that that was a the Olympiad later when Holyfield got screwed. But that's a different story. But well, so in Jones 76, so Cosell did such a great job of boosting Ray Leonard, fell in love with Ray Leonard, that that really started the networks in getting involved, all the networks, uh, with on putting well, CBS boxing got involved, on NBC CBS, got involved. NBC, yeah. and of course, ABC always had been involved. And that was... That made stars of these guys so that four years later, less than four years later, Sugar Ray fought Duran in Montreal 
And that did business never before seen in boxing, both closed circuit, the gate, and yeah. everything. And boxing took off. So that so that that's a great point because Ali is starting to fade at that point. Right, uh, he did. It's post. It's post uh, Manila. Ali was really finished in 1978. He wasn't finished as an icon, but he was finished as, as, as a, a fighter. Yeah, yeah. After he he lost to Spinks and then beat Spinks in New Orleans, which in was the still rematch. fun, but it was kind of yeah. Shaver's fight. I remember being like. Oh no! He almost he always shaved yeah, was like, almost this killed is, him. This is heading toward a bad Absolutely. place. Absolutely. But Sugar Ray showed up. He immediately. I was like six. He was like, "That's my guy, Sugar." And follow yeah. him. I remember watching ABC would just and you, beat you, him you, into the you ground. Had, you had a, in addition to Sugar Ray, you had this crazy guy from Panama, Roberto Duran. Yeah, who was like a, a menacing kind of guy. Uh, you had uh, uh, Tommy Hearns who the didn't hitman. go to the Olympics, but had this great punch. And then from nowhere, uh, you got this fellow who couldn't get a fight and got a shot at the title because of the intercession of two leaders of Congress. Yeah. was marvelous Marvin Hagler. That's, a, that's an unbelievable story. I mean, you know, Hagler, nobody wanted to fight him. He was very good. He was a Southpaw. Nobody wanted to fight a Southpaw. And he was he was, also, he's a bald black guy. And he was a black, yeah. So, you know, he'd fight these Philadelphia guys. and But they didn't you know, want to put him on TV, right? You know, King wouldn't. King was doing a tournament and wouldn't put him on TV. Because he didn't feel like he... That he didn't, that he couldn't do anything with him and who who needed him in there. He wouldn't, it wasn't a draw. And that, whatever reason King had. And so I got... Two letters that came the same day. One was from Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House, and the other from Teddy Kennedy, who was a senator from Massachusetts, that unless I gave their constituent, Marvin Hagler, a shot at the title, because I was doing all the middleweight championship fights, soon, sooner rather than later, I would have my ass hauled before Congress and they would do an investigation oh on me. So I said, hey, I don't need this trouble. So I got a hold of Rip Valenti, who was Marvin's promoter from New England. And I knew very well because he did a lot of closed circuit for me. And I said, hey, Rip, I don't want any trouble. So he got the Petronellis to come to my office. They were the manager and trainer of Marvin. And I agreed uh, for Marvin to... Uh, we give him a 10-round fight against this very good Argentine fighter, Cabrera, Norberto Cabrera. And if he won that fight, match him for the world title, which we did. And the judges in Nevada, in their infinite wisdom, scored that fight with Antifermo a draw, although Marvin won almost every round. That, that was one of the five biggest disgraces of the last four disgrace, years. Disgrace, disgrace, disgrace. Anyway... And uh, so then I, I had Marvin fight three fights before he got a crack at the title. And by that time, Alan Minta was the middleweight champion. and Hagler, British guy. The British guy. And Hagler stopped Minta. And Minta was, uh, you know, was, I forgot what the name of the organization was, but it was the equivalent of the white supremacist party in England. 
I mean, he got on radio, I'll never forget, and he said, no black man is going to win the title from me. And so when Hagler stopped him, uh, instead of, you know, really enjoying yeah, the having mo- his moment, moment holding the belt. They started throwing beer bottles it's at horrible. us. It's horrible. And we ended up under the ring. It's an incredible YouTube clip because in like I think it's three rounds. Yeah. Well, something it was, like that. Yeah, it's three, four rounds. Something. And he just does by by after three rounds, Minter's face, it looks like he's been it was in a like, car accident. It was like he we just been, killed him. Killed him. Just Wins killed the title him. and then immediately everybody throws beer bottles I mean, at but, him and he's scurrying but, for but his but life. In in those days, in those days they didn't like pour beer into a, a a plastic cup. They they had cans and bottles. Yeah, it was dangerous as hell. I remember. I remember Howard Cosell. I don't blame him. Cowering under the ring. Right. So you had. So you hit the jackpot with Leonard. Then you have Hagler, and out of nowhere, Duran. Although he wasn't out of nowhere, but I think for. Well, the American met, boxing fan, it was not somebody who had been in high profile huge. Well, but Duran had been on 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 network on television on TV. But Leonard carried that first Leonard fight. Leonard carried the first fight, although Duran clearly won that fight and he got the decision. So I saw that closed circuit with my stepdad. And I I was so upset that so many people were rooting for Duran. I was like 10. But Duran had that, he was like the the Leonard was the pretty boy. And Duran was like the the tough guy. And and once you no, once you 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 spent time and I got to know Duran because he fought for me for years and yeah. you know, right. He had a couple and good comebacks. He was the funniest guy, the nicest guy. All he wanted to do was have a good time. His persona in the ring was clearly different from what he was as a person. He was just a good time guy. Well, he definitely didn't like Leonard because he even like when they were when the fifteenth round ended in the first fight, Duran didn't want to shake hands. He was like still well, mad at him. You don't know what the story was. I don't. No. Well, Ray was uh, in one hotel in Montreal where the fight was being held. Yeah, and Duran was in the other hotel. And Ray had his wife, Juanita, his first wife, along with him. And Duran had a spy that would inform him when Juanita was going out, leaving the hotel to go shopping. And he would follow Juanita's car in his own car, and he would go up and he said, after I, you know, he can hardly speak English. After I beat your husband, you will sleep with me, some crazy stuff. And, you know, she would be horrified and report back to Ray, who got so angry that he really lost control. So Ray, way to beat Duran, he was a great boxer, uh, uh, Leonard was. Yeah, he fought him like a street fighter. Well, for because he rounds. was so angry <laughs> yeah. because Duran had really caused that confrontation. Now, you watch that fight, and early on, Ray is in there fighting. Duran's winning every all the rounds. Yeah. Later on, like from the 12th round on, because they're 15 round fight, the la- Ray starts boxing, and Duran can't do anything. Now, from that time, 
They fought three times, two more times. One was the Nomas fight, and then the last fight they had. Duran never won a round because Ray knew to beat Duran, you had to box him. I was so frustrated the first fight. I didn't understand why he was fighting that way. Because, but I'm telling you, it was the like story. a mano a mano I'm macho. Yeah, you that story. makes sense now. Yeah. yeah. Um, second fight. Did you ever buy the Durant? We did a when I was at ESPN. We did a thirty for thirty about this. Did you ever buy Durant's explanation? Yeah, it was true. The explanation was that Ray only wanted to do a rematch because he felt so bad that he had lost. That had never lost. He felt bad. So they. Mike Trainer, who was representing Ray, made a deal with King that, in effect, they gave Duran and his people the lion's share. Now, Duran, after the first fight- And you're not involved in this? No, it's King? I wasn't involved. Oh, wow. Because that was King, now King. So this is, you guys are head-to-head on everything at this point. We are head-to-head on the, on the we, we co-promoted the first fight. And then he steals the second one. And they you know, they go to him and they offer him everything to, so he and Carlos Aletta, who was the manager of Duran, carve up a, a ton of money. Yeah. And they offer Duran a decent purse, but nothing what was on the table. And Duran doesn't want to do it because he's partying back in Panama and he's out of shape and all of that stuff, and they force him into the fight. So, again, yeah, did he have stomach pains? Yeah. Did he, was he in good shape? No. Didn't matter. He never won another round from Ray. So when they had the third fight, which was 12 rounds, Ray won every round. Leonard broke him, I felt like, in New Orleans. Yeah. I, it, well, I felt had, like oh, whatever was going on then physically, he knew he wasn't going to touch Ray him that Ray was a superb boxer. He really was. Yeah. Were you there for the press conference when he made it seem like he was going to maybe fight Hagler in the rematch and then it turned out he just retired and he embarrassed Hagler? Well, I remember all of that sort of stuff. Wasn't it embarrassed Hagler? He had a bad eye and so forth. Well, it did embarrass he, Hagler, he, though. He decided that he would fight Hagler really after Hagler, after he beat Tommy Hearns, was from New England. He saved all his money. He had enough. He wanted to retire. Somehow, I talked him into fighting Mugabe. John you talked Hagler into fighting Mugabe. Yeah. And well, wait, uh, hold the, hold that thought. You did Hagler Hearns, which was the greatest nine right. minutes of all time. Yeah. Eight minutes, whatever. You were at that fight. Yes, that's your number one. That's, that's everyone's number. That's one. That's the best fight. That's the best one ever. Yeah, that fight and the Thriller in Manila mm. are the two Our best one A, fights. one B. Yeah. So Hagler gets out of that. You talk him into Mugabe, and Mugabe. And, that's and one of the most brutal fights of the brutal 80s. Brutal fights of all time. So Ray sees that Marvin is slow enough. Now he wants to come back. He figures a way that he can beat Marvin. So, I mean, we to get Hagler to to go through with that fight was really something. And Trainer wanted to do the fight himself, didn't want me involved, didn't want top rank involved. Hagler wouldn't do the fight unless we were the promoter. So, so Hagler I, was loyal to you to the bitter end. I, I, Hagler was a lo- That's most- That's your guy. Hagler was the most loyal guy, both to the Petronellis, to me, 
He knew nothing but loyalty. And so I paid Ray what they asked, 11 million, a fortune then. And we took all the rest. And Hagler fought on percentage and made 19 million. And when I... Every time I remind Ray of that, he gets so angry. You know, <laughs> so he took the guaranteed guy. money over the upside. He took the guaranteed money. Ray uh, Marvin took the percentage. Marvin wouldn't help with the promotion. And Ray carried the promotion. And he really, you know, Ray's a good guy. Really That's hilarious. Good guy. I remember I was with boxing, you know, from the wide world of sports era to when it started. We used to have the little HBO box on our TV and then when they started having it. And I don't remember exactly the year that that pay-per-view started, but I remember pay-per-viewing Leonard Hagler and it felt like a relatively new experience. Did you have any idea where that was going? Well, no, because we still divided up the country and we had closed circuit exhibitors that paid guarantees in different areas. Now the closed circuit exhibitors were, some of them were contacted by individual cable companies who wanted to show the fight on pay-per-view. And they, the uh, closed circuit exhibitors made 80-20 deals. We would get it, they would- They would get 80, 80, you'd get 20. And the cable system would get 20, keep 20. It was 80-20. And they they did really fantastic pay-per-view numbers. Prior to that, in the uh, in the Leonard Duran fight in Montreal in 1980, Jerry Parencio had this system in California because there was no cable where he had one channel and you had to pay for that channel. It was encrypted and... He came to me and he said, I want to show it on pay-per-view on my channel. And he gave me a really big sum of money. And they did 90% of the people that subscribed to that channel bought the pay-per-view. Jesus. That began to show me how the pay-per-view could really change everything. By the way, for people listening who don't know what closed circuit, Kyle, you know what closed circuit is? cameras like cctv but yeah that's so what I'm closed circuit was like, so i watched leonard duran in a highlight place because they just yeah, had this we had to basically go almost like you're going to a basketball game and they would just show the fight on a screen and that was the only way to see oh, it oh so, so that's I what saw, you actually mean by my dad circuit. took me to leonard uh hearns the first one okay and we went to the boston garden they showed it in the boston garden wow but it was just a broadcast right. of the fight and, and that, it was like 19 15 000 people and there. now the cable companies you know they now they become really, this is in the 90s, 1990s, they became, you know, they were really doing big numbers and they have very, they're the greediest people in the world. And they tried to say, well, we'll keep 60% and give you 40. And I said, no. I, they said, what are you going to do? Because we're the pipeline. I said, I'm going to go back to closed circuit. So I did closed circuit. In the West, where they had them, I had my Mexicans, right? Yeah. Delaware, Chavez. We couldn't open enough places. We had closed circuit at the Rose Bowl, at the yeah. Coliseum, <laughs> every place. As soon as we crossed the Mississippi, we died. Yeah. So it was, 
So cable was like 87, but in the 90s, that was when. That was the big. And and it was hard, you know. And then, of course, they had uh, the direct TV, the satellite dishes. Uh, and now and, we're heading toward this world with, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, but it's going to be all these places like The Zone and ESPN Plus where they're just buying it and they want it for their OTT app. Yeah, and that's, that's basically the future of boxing other than the pay-per-views, right? Well, that may be. We don't know. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. Uh, I think the the pay-per-view- Showtime does obviously have, has it. Does have, yeah. And uh, we have a lot of ways you can buy the pay-per-view digitally. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, and I think that'll be- uh, such that we'll be able to cut down the percentages that the cable systems get and that the uh, dishes get because there's another avenue to reach the public and that's the digital platforms. Well, that's, you know, if the next iteration of you comes around, like some 37-year-old version of you, and they could form their version of Top Rank, but then have their own digital platform for it and they don't need anybody else. Subscribe well, to my app and you get my fights. Well, I know, but you know. That's 10 years the, down the, the road. And the but, question is, is there enough content for one? I mean, now we do all our digital programming on ESPN Plus. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in addition to our content, you have UFC on on ESPN Plus. Did you see the numbers uh, for that last yeah, week? Yeah, it was tremendous. Yeah. Tremendous. They got they added like six hundred thousand new subscribers or something. Well, they, they got it on Friday and Saturday. Right. New subscribers. The late but, rush. But remember, we had a pretty good um uh card on Friday night and a lot of people Oh yeah, you get some of that credit. Well, yeah, exactly. And and we <laughs> and we've brought a lot of good numbers to them. Uh but again, ESPN plus in addition to to uh boxing, uh UFC has uh, tremendous programming. Uh, all the soccer that they have on, football. I like this is like an ESPN Plus commercial all of a sudden. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I really see it. No, I, I agree. I think what they're trying to do, they're tapping in these little niche pockets and trying to cluster them so that if like I like the UFC, I have to get ESPN Plus. If I like your fights, I have to get it. Right. And they're trying to get 10 versions of that. And, and right. And, and for example- if I went to school at the University of Ohio, I want to see the Ohio football games. Yeah. I, I get ESPN Plus. They showed Ohio football game. They showed the Harvard football game. It's interesting what's happened to boxing where for a while it was on the prestige. It was on HBO and Showtime and it was pay-per-view. And the feeling was, oh, it doesn't work anymore as a network thing. But meanwhile, it actually did work. And if anything, it makes more sense now because you have middle class, lower middle class, people that can't afford fights. And it's like, this is actually makes more sense than I think people gave it credit for. The conventional wisdom was that boxing skewed old. Yeah. Older people. And the UFC was going to replace it, all that stuff. And it was pretty much everybody bought into it because boxing could only be seen really on uh, Showtime or HBO. And you had to pay $15 a month and so forth. And those platforms skewed old. Yeah. All right. Once we got, 
with ESPN and opened it up to everybody, uh, we skew so young. In other words, uh, I think we uh, the biggest number of viewers that we have are uh, 18 to 49, really young. Probably 60% of the viewers are in that demographic. And you knew this all the time, but the Latino community exactly. is, is a goldmine for this. Latino community, the African-American community. I knew that, that young people were interested. And they like to watch, they'll watch in groups, they'll have little parties. Absolutely. It's a, it's a good, easy sport to follow. And it's a sport around the world. I don't and, know why we lost sight of that for a few be, years. Because there. Weird. We, got, we all got greedy. And the, the premium networks were paying so much money. And the regular networks, ESPN, uh, Fox, uh, uh, they couldn't compete. They couldn't compete. Why do you think boxing has escaped? Like in football, they talk about concussions and safety all the time. And in boxing, the goal is to punch somebody until they fall down. Because I think in boxing, we have really good uh, uh, safety rules that we didn't have before. Look, any kind of contact sport is going to be dangerous. There's no question about it. But I think they've done in boxing a really good job making it safer. It's still not safe, though. Well, no contact sport is going to be safe. Yeah. You know, if they talk about soccer being safe. Headers. Well, it's not really safe if everybody is using their head to bang the ball, particularly younger people. There there is now medical, a word now, that younger people who use their heads uh, it, when they play soccer because you're allowed to hit the ball with your My head. daughter plays. I, right. I think about it all the right. time. Re, you know, really you're in some danger. But in any event, I think boxing is safer. They do a good job. Uh, testing goes on all the time. Uh, and we've lowered the incidence of bad things happening. That's the best you can do. I think they're trying to do the same thing in football. Yeah. But you got these monsters hitting each other. Going gonna, 20 miles you're, an you're hour. You're going you're gonna to get, you You have to get injuries. And unfortunately, uh, that's, the, that's, that's, the, that's the situation. Now, you know, one thing that's happening in boxing is now that more people are watching it on networks like ESPN, uh, some of these kids are better or equal to the greats that we've seen before. You got somebody like one of our fighters, Terrence Crawford. Yeah. Who's a sensational fighter. And he is the equal, if not better, than Sugar Ray Leonard. I mean, really is. His skill set. But you know how this stuff goes, though. What? I mean, one of the reasons Leonard was so great was he had other great people to fight at a great point in his career. Yeah, but again, it was a great point in his so career. So Crawford needs his version of the Hearns. Right, well, he's going to fight Amir Khan. That's a good start. Amir Khan is not a bad fighter. Was a, He's going to beat Amir Khan, good, though. Well, only by bigger guys. Who's, I mean, who's going to be his Hearns? What? Who's going to be his Hearns? Maybe Spence, if Spence doesn't go up in weight. 
Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see. There's a lot of great Eastern European guys coming up. Now, They these guys can fight anybody. There's this Kavaliskas from, uh, from Lithuania. Uh, there's uh, uh, Besputin from Russia. Those are two good, good uh, welterweights. There's a guy in Spain now who's like 28, no, Laraga, who can compete with any welterweight. So there's going to be uh, uh, these really good, good matches. And then if you say, well, Eastern European, can they really fight like the Americans? Yes. The answer is that they can be better. Look what's happening in basketball. They're meaner. Look what's happening in basketball. Look how many of these Eastern European kids are excelling. Which fighter Which fighter is in with top rank that you wish you had? Who's your number of draft pick? Well, uh, Who the, who's the one you're the most jealous of? Well, I'd, I would like to have Spence. I think that he's he's a terrific fighter. Right. So Spence, if you're listening. What? Spence, if you're listening, Bob Arum enjoys your work. Well, yeah, but I don't want to interfere <laughs> with anybody's contract. Spence is a really good fighter. Yeah. You know, and there, there are other fighters that are, you know, Canelo is a good fighter, very good fighter. Uh, Golovkin is a good fighter. I actually feel fighter. like Canelo has improved. He has improved. I always felt like... Uh, I mean, he may he might have gotten the big fight a little too early in his career, but I always felt like he was like one two, one two. But now he's actually like well, puts together combinations. He has and stuff. good trainers, yeah, and uh, uh, so good that one of our major fighters, Oscar Valdez, the featherweight champion, went over, and he's now being trained by the same people that train Canelo, and he'll be fighting uh, in Dallas uh, on ESPN. Uh, on the second of February, okay, uh, the night before the um, the Super Bowl. Oh, and that that's an interesting dynamic. You're going to see something that's really unique. There are going to be two fights on ESPN: a lightweight championship with Comey. Yeah, the winner of that fight will fight Lomachenko in April, and uh, uh, Oscar Valdez defending his title and that'll be on ESPN, regular ESPN. And that will lead to ESPN plus oh, to with Tiafima Lopez. And then the light heavyweight clash, uh, uh, Kovalev against Alvarez. So that's the, the UFC move where they have the free fight. That is basically the lead e- into e- the Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you always hear about boxing, these guys get left no money, little money, and everybody blames the promoters and the people around them, and they took it. Obviously, you're one of the signature promoters. Do you feel like, as you look back at your career, and it's been incredible, do you look back at like some of the fighters you've had and, and think like, shit, I wish I had done this, I wish I had done that, this is unfair, it's an unfair sport? Like, How do you reconcile all that stuff? All you can do is pay a fighter fairly and counsel them that this isn't going to last a long time. Athletes die young. Huh? Their career is relatively short. You think it's a 20-year prime and it might be five. Exactly. You, you, so you counsel them to save their money. Now, a lot of them don't have that ability 
and don't, they want to enjoy themselves. That's not only boxers. That's football players, basketball players. They piss money away, a lot of them. That's terrible. Now you try to work with them. You try to help them. But for every, like Terrence Crawford, who's from the Midwest, who saves his money. And I mean, we were over in England promoting his fight with Amir Khan, you know, because we're going to do pay-per-view in England. And uh, he bought some stuff in England. And in England, if you buy things in a store, they charge you the VAT. But you go to the airport, you can get a refund. So his VAT was $20. And he's chasing around the airport. He's making almost $5 million for the fight. And he's chasing around the airport <laughs> looking for his $20 back. <laughs> I mean, that shows pretty good. Ali I'm, wasn't doing that in the mid-70s. Ali wouldn't do it, but Marvin did it. Yeah. Hagler, Hagler was very cautious with the money. So was Ray. Ray has a lot of money today. So, because this, we did, when I was at ESPN, we did a documentary called Broke, about why athletes go broke. And I actually think it became a really instructive documentary for some of the younger guys watching it. And there's some things I would change about it. But for the most part, the education of these guys, the NBA is the best at this right now. When these guys come in the league, they have courses, they explain to them, here's how long your career is. If you make this, here's what the taxes come out and try to lay it out. We didn't have this in the 60s, 70s, Correct. 80s. But again, a real the real problem, even more than them pissing money away on getting uh, uh, a Rolls Royce, a Bentley, when the, a regular car could do, is that a lot of them are attractive and the women are attracted to them. And a lot of them don't take precautions mm. when they have sex and therefore have so many children. And every child that's born, they're responsible for, and they have to pay child support. And the courts, when they determine what the child support it should be, looks at what they're making at the time. Yeah. And therefore, these athletes are building themselves, they're getting ready for destruction. Because when they stop making this money, it's very, very difficult to go back to the court and say, I can't afford. And then the, the, and then the other lawyer on the other side saying, I don't believe you. Right. You're, and I mean, look at, look at Vander Holyfield. Yeah. Vander wasn't a, that big a spender, but he had so many children that he's paying child support for that he went broke. Entourages are another big problem, it seems Who? like. Entourages. Well, entourages like 15, is a problem. 16 too. people that you're taking care of for but, three months. But that you can deal you can at least with cut down. In, the, in, the, in these lectures that they, the, the, the leagues give these kids. Yeah. That you can tell them. Also, you can tell them you can't get the most expensive house. You get a nice house and right. so forth. But nobody is telling them, stop having kids out of wedlock. <laughs> Let's take a break. Talk about State Farm. Over 19,000 agents across the country. 19,000. Huge number. But it's not really about the number. It's about having a real person who's nearby, someone you can talk to and get personalized help protecting what matters most. Speaking of State Farm, 
they are the presenting sponsors of my NBA trade value guide. Put up 2.0 a little bit earlier in the month. I'd already changed a couple of things. It is live on theringer.com right now. Go check it out at The Ringer and see my definitive ranking for February of all the most important NBA assets. It's interesting. I did it right before the trade deadline and then a couple of trades happened. Made me question where I put a couple of the people. Jason Tatum might be climbing. Anthony Davis might be dropping. They could, the Lakers couldn't even get him. I had him, I think I dropped him to three. Who knows? Uh, I'm probably going to do a blown out version of this in March with some uh, writing about some of the different players. So check that out. Combining the purchase of your home and auto insurance, remember, is easy with the help of a real life State Farm agent. Go to statefarm.com eight slash agent to find an agent today that is go to statefarm.com slash agent. Find your agent today. Back to Bob Aaron. <laughs> uh, could you tell the Snake Canyon story? Snake River Canyon. Snake River Canyon. <laughs> that was one of my uh, promotions that I'm least uh, uh, proud of. Uh, Evil Knievel during his apex. Yeah, he was like, nobody would believe this now, but I felt like when I was a kid, he was as big as Ali for like two years. Yeah, right. It really felt like he was as famous as and as important. I know he wasn't, but it felt like- And he had the ideal toy company that was making money on the- the evil Knievel motorcycle and the space He was the coolest crib. dude. You wanted, when you were a little kid, you wanted to be evil Knievel, period. Well, what happened was, it's sort of fun, it's sort of interesting, is Vince McMahon Sr., the, the father the dad. Of, of Vince Jr., who's now, who, who is the head of, uh, uh, of the world wrestling. Yeah. Better. Uh, fathers asked me if I could take on his son, Vince Jr., to uh, teach him about the promotion business. Oh, interesting. And so Vince came to see me, but Vince wasn't ready to be taught. Vince had a great idea. He had met this evil Knievel who jumped over cars and buses and was going to jump the Snake River Canyon. And he said, "You got you gotta, we got to be involved in it. So... I uh, at first resisted, but Vince contacted ABC and ABC had done tremendous numbers with Knievel jumping over uh, trucks and buses and cars. It was amazing. And, And ABC let me know that if I did that fight, I did that event with Evil Knievel, I could expect more dates mm. on television for boxing. So I signed on and it was a disaster from beginning to end because when I was taken to that site and I saw the little thing, the, the they call it a spacecraft. It was like a tunable It looked trolley. like a rocket almost. Like rocket. a rocket across a the bicycle. And to go over the, 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 the water, at the Snake River Canyon to go on the other side. I mean, it was like, it was crazy. The whole thing was nuts. And besides the craziest was Knievel. This guy was a total and complete madman. <laughs> I mean, I remember we went on a tour, went on a tour of the country to start up in, uh, interest in the thing. 
And I remember once we were at a, this, stayed at this motel that was near uh, an army base. And uh, it was a weekend and the uh, soldiers with their girlfriends were in the swimming pool. And he comes out like a lunatic on the terrace. Shut up, shut up, I'm trying to go to sleep. And of course they continue having fun in the pool, right? He takes a gun and shoots the gun into the pool. Oh my God. I mean, absolutely, totally, there wasn't any way you could control. I had been around Ali and his people and some really dicey sort of people in boxing. I had never seen anything like an evil. And of course, before long, Vince, showing how smart he was, bailed out of the whole thing. (laughs) Right. He said, get me out of here. And left me with it. So now we get to the site and uh, uh, we stayed at this hotel and uh, really motels. And uh, Snake River Canyon is right near Twin Falls, Idaho. And Twin Falls, Idaho is pretty well a Mormon. Okay. place right and when the the mormon women it's hard to believe when the mormon women found out what was happening all this action they've come from twin four they started coming to the site and they had these writers who were like nerdy sort of guys right <laughs> and these great looking Mormon women were throwing themselves at the guys. So the word spread. We ended up, I think, with 10 Pulitzer Prize writers <laughs> covering this event. And we brought in, I mean. Every you know, writer worth his bones is somehow yeah, right. going down there. And, we, and every writer now is writing how what a tremendous event is because they're having sex with all these great women. I mean, what the hell? <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, it was that was sometime. I brought so in. So then, evil. He uh, takes off and and he no panics? no oh, no no. So now now Knievel is the, the night before the jump. He wants to go back to Butte, Montana, where he came from, and we have a plane taking him to Twin Falls and a helicopter taking him to the site. The night before, the concessionaires remember. These people have got cars and so concessionaires raise the price of beer from $2 to $3, something okay. like that. Resistance, they objected, the people. The unwashed objected, and they started looting the place and threatening to burn down the site. And I had people, you know, ready to attack them. I called the governor. The governor says, okay, we'll send in the National Guard but then there's no jump. I said, no, forget about it. Finally, it calms down because they they break in and they're drinking all that beer. They all got drunk (laughs) and quiet, right? They went to sleep. And the guys who were running the site for me, I said, we got to have security here. They said, right. So where am I going to get security? So we made a deal with the Hells Angels to come and to, (laughs) to police the site, right? And I said, how much are you going to charge? They said, no, for Brother Evil, free. And as long as you feed us. So yeah. I, I had to give him breakfast and so on. Then the, the idiot, Knievel, calls. He said, I'm on a plane. I'm coming over and coming to Twin Four, but I'm not going to jump 
unless you honor two requests. I said, what are the requests? Well, the first request was that he want me to take all the press to where the helicopter is going to land so he's going to speak, he's going to die, and all that stuff. I said, Eva, I can't move people here. I'm afraid there'll be a total riot. So he, I said, but, uh, but, but we'll bring you to the site and you can address the press. Okay. He, he bought that. I said, what's the second? I have two young kids, seven and nine. He says, I want you to bring your two sons to the trailer and I want to talk to them before the jump. Okay, no problem. Okay, comes over. I take my two kids and bring them to the trailer, and he starts it. He says, tomorrow your father will be the most unpopular man in the world because I'm going to die, and they're going to blame him, your father, for oh my the death. God. But I want you to know that this was not your father's idea. This was my idea. My kids are crying and so forth. <laughs> and he says, I'm just to show you how much I appreciate your father, appreciate you two kids, I want you to sit with my, my kid, your kids, to sit with my family at the jump. Now, I got two smart little Jewish kids. They ain't going to sit with his family right. if he's going to die, right? They go next, right? <laughs> So finally, I convince them, no, don't worry, and so forth, sit with them, and I go in the truck. So now he's ready. I go up to the where the, the rocket is, and I see him shaking like a madman. I mean, shaking so he's like legit uncontroll, nervous. uncontrollably. I said, Eva, calm yourself down. Everything's going to be all right. No, it won't, and so forth. Now, the thing I was worried about is if he loses control, we had a switch, a lever. He loses control. Then we call it the dead man switch when he was supposed to be. When he's over and landing, he pulls that switch and the parachutes come out so he could have a soft land. But he's so nervous. Anyway, going to the truck. Now you, the engines roar for the rocket. And he's so scared out of his mind that he lets the the lever he pulls loose, the parachute before and he's the even parachute out. comes out before, and he barely makes it to the right over to the initial bank of the river. He goes into the river, right? And I run out of the truck, television truck, to see what's happening. And there I see my two little kids running like sons <laughs> to get away from the family. <laughs> but he lived. He lived. Yeah, he lived. He lived. Great for humanity. So the, so the biggest, I can't even imagine what that have been would have been like in the internet era, because he he the jump lasted about five feet. Yeah, look, it, the thing that was interesting, it was so big, we had created out of this nonsense something that was so enormous. It's like an, it was an audience bigger right. than like the Super Bowl now, yeah, right? Yeah, we what we had what we had was. Uh, President Ford, Nixon had resigned. Yeah. Ford was the president, and he chose that day to pardon Nixon because he felt um, that news would be lost in this evening. And his son, Ford's son, President Ford's son, was at the jump. Jesus. 
What uh, what's your relationship with Don King like now? We went I mean, to you've all, been linked together for fifty years. We're two old guys, you know. Uh, you know, I would mean, you shake hands if you yeah, saw? Of course, him? of course. Because you would have you. There would be famous stories about you guys would co-promote fights, but you wouldn't even acknowledge each other, and you would have a third person. You would talk to the third person, that person, rather than it. That's not true. That's totally not true. And particularly when we counted the money, we talked to each other a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever have to be separated from him? Was there ever screaming matches? Only once. Because he's taller than you. Oh, yeah. Big, big. He's a big dude. Only once. I did the, uh, the Leonard Hagler fight. Yeah. And that was in 1987. He didn't. He wasn't involved. No, in that he wasn't one. involved. Now in 1978, I did in February. I did first Ali Spinks fight yeah. where Spinks upset Ali. Second fight in New Orleans where Ali beat Spinks. And I never even ever bothered to go in the ring or anything. And I look up this 1978 September 78, and there's King raising Ali's hand like he had something to do with the fight. He had nothing to do with it. All right. So that goes into the memory bank, right? I remember. Now it's 1987, (laughs) and Hagler and Leonard have a good, terrific fight, and they announce that Ray won the fight closely. I thought Hagler won, but that's beside the point. And the PR guy from Caesars comes running over to me, and he says, Bob, Bob, King is climbing up to go in the ring. So I remembered. So I run like mad over to the <laughs> ring. And I said, mother F, get the hell down. No, he's going. So I pull down, I rip his jacket and pull him down. I mean, because the adrenaline is going, he's twice yeah. my size. I pull him down. And as I pull him down, he tries to go at me. Sergeant Pete, who was the, the head of security at Caesars, big black guy comes over to prevent King from trying to physically assault me. And King is yelling. And we have the, the, the uh, David Dinkins Jr. was uh, working the, the fight and he has the audio for that. And King is yelling, you call yourself a black man. You you're taking the part of this Jew against me. So, <laughs> That was the one confrontation that we had. Oh my God. What how did he weasel his way into the uh the foreman fight? That was very interesting. Why why did you have he, that fight? Now you have a, you, you, on your wall I see you have uh uh Monday, January twenty eighth, nineteen seventy four, uh where uh I did the Ali Fraser second fight yep. in Madison Square Garden. And I had done a whole series of fights for Ali, uh, and I was Ali's promoter. Now, King goes to Herbert Muhammad, who's my good friend and the manager at that point of Ali, and says, I'll pay five and a half million to Ali to fight George Foreman. So Herbert says, what should I do? I said, look, where's he coming up with five and a half? I supposedly offered Foreman, who was the champion, also five and a half. I said, so at that point, that's the equivalent of what now? Like 150 million? Yeah, a like or something? Some crazy uh, yeah, number. Crazy number. So I said, 
get $500,000 from him as a deposit, and he has to come up with letters of credit and so forth for the rest. So King scrapes up 500, gives it to Ali, has no place to go with the fight. The numbers were insane. He goes over to his partner, Hank Schwartz, goes over to England. They get a hold of John Daly, who's the head of Hemdale Studios, a little movie studio in England. And somehow Daly comes up with Mabutu, the crook from Zaire, yeah. who puts up money for the fight. Not a great and guy. And bails King out. And the first thing they did, the first thing they did when they made the deal was to ban me from the country. I was banned from the country. You weren't even allowed to land I, I in Zaire? I was not allowed to come. And, and, and hell, I'm a brave guy, but I ain't going to yeah, go and yeah, ar- yeah. argue with them. That's amazing. I never knew that story. Yeah. What Did you get the Manila fight? You did, right? Manila fight I did, yeah. We, King and I did it together, yeah. God. So you you still have Hagler Hearns a smidge over the Manila fight, or is it like dead even? Hagler Hearns was the most exciting fight that I have ever seen. It was three rounds of tremendous action. I'll never forget that first round when the, the, it goes back to the tour. This was the first countrywide tour. We did 26 cities in two weeks. Oh, God. And these fighters got on each other's nerve in St. Louis. They Hagler went after Hearns, and I'm yelling at them. You throw it and punch you guys. The fight's off. You're not going to get paid. Anyway, it, it was... By the time that fight happened, these guys hated each other. It was mostly Marvin, you know. But when they got into the ring, there was no boxing. Yeah. They were just looking to knock each other's head off. And Tommy was the best puncher of his era. And Tommy hit Marvin with a right hand flush that should have that knocked out. The same right hand and that, that knocked Durant. out Duran, yeah. that knocked out Pepino Cuevas. And Marvin, like, went back, came forward. And for me, that fight was over at that point. I don't feel like anyone is beating Marvin that day in the history of that weight class. I agree with you. I agree. Because he, I'm with you. Hearns was hitting him basically with a two-by-four. And he's just like laughing and coming forward. Uh, it His wasn't face laughing. is busted open. He wasn't laughing. His <laughs> head was busted open. I mean, this was, I mean, unbelievable fight. Unbelievable fight. Because that when he knocked out Duran, like Duran was like out. He was like in a in a practical coma well, he, for like a minute. When he he knocked Duran out, Tommy, Duran went up in the air. And came it's, down. It might be the best knockout Ever. you can find on the internet. Ever. It's like yeah. just the perfect punch. It's the perfect distance. Yeah. The, the, uh, uh, it's not the equivalent, but as far as look, looking, a knockout, the Tiafimo Lopez's knockout of his last opponent. Also, the guy goes up in the air oh my and God. comes down on slow motion right on his face. So the Manila fight, that was basically like, neither guy, they're, yeah. I'm prepared to die today. No, they're right. Yeah. Ali. I'm not losing to you. Ali, I, I will die Ali if I have to. starts off boxing the pants off, or Fraser. 
the mid-rounds, Fraser comes back and he looks like he's going to knock Ali out. And somehow at the end rounds, Ali recovers and beats the hell out of Fraser, closes both of his eyes, and Fraser still wants to come out, but he can't see out yeah. of either. He was blind, totally blind. Yeah, didn't care. Didn't care. And it was like, what was it, like 110 degrees? It, well, it was in the Arenada Coliseum in Manila. It was indoors, but there was no air conditioning. God. Who remembered how hot it was? I rem- The thing I remember, like it was yesterday, is because the fight was in the late morning, right? Because it had to be prime time back in the United States. And coming out of the Arenada Coliseum, which was a dark building at the time, and the sun was so bright you couldn't see. And it was almost like unreal. Everybody was like, it was like something like we didn't realize what reality was and everything. Everybody was just carried away. And I remember we went all went back to the uh, Philippine Village Hotel, and there was a three-day orgy like never before <laughs> in the history of boxing. Did, uh, did the fact that you did the Manila fight carry any weight with Pacquiao when you were trying to sign him? I don't know. I, 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 all it, 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 I, I got to know Imelda who got into trouble then and left yeah. the country. Imelda was always a friend of mine. and uh, You've had some I, interesting friends. Yeah, when I came back to, she, our people called up, and I had, took her to dinner with another couple, and we took pictures together, and then she sent, uh, had the picture framed, and she said, from Muhammad Ali to uh, Pacquiao, you are the greatest. Oh, wow. What was the craziest country you've ever done a fight in? That you were like, I might not get out of here alive. Well, uh, you weren't I, allowed in Zaire, so that's disqualified. Yeah, I I, I, I think um, uh, I did fights uh, during uh, the Soviet Union times. Yeah. In, um, uh, in Yugoslavia. It was called Yugoslavia there. When it was really starting to fall apart. Red Star Stadium in Belgrade. That was pretty crazy, but I never worried about uh, getting out. The the diciest moment that I recall is when I did Ali and Richard Dunn in Munich. And uh, the, uh, the organizers of the fight uh, came up with the initial money, pay Ali, letters of credit, and so forth. Didn't have enough money to pay for the undercard, so Ali put up the money for the undercard. And you knew that these guys were going to take a tremendous bear. Yeah. Because they had priced the tickets too high and so forth. And we heard rumors that they were going to bring a suit against me, of all people, on the grounds that I would then be bullied into giving them back some money. Because in Germany, under the legal system, if you're a foreigner and you're sued, you have to 
they can put you in jail until you put up a bond for what you've been sued for. So it's like an extortion or It's like, yeah. So I got a German lawyer and he said, look, way I counsel you is don't take a plane out of here after the fight. Take a train and go to Zurich. And then from Zurich, you can fly home. So remember, I'm a Jewish guy. I mean, here was escaping from Germany on a train to go to Zurich, and uh, which I did, and flew home from Zurich. But that was the diciest, I think, that I had, uh, uh, you know, undergone. Yeah, that's a, that's that's a little frightening. Why how why are you still doing this at age eighty seven? I mean, other than that, you're a role model for people who are still working hard as, as they get older and older. But I'm amazed that you're still in the grind after all these years. Because it's not work. You just love it. It's fun. I love to watch fights now. I wasn't a big fight fan when I started, but this is over 50 years. Yeah. 50 afterwards. I love the fights. I love being around the fighters. Uh, I love what I'm doing. And it certainly beats staying home and watching, reading books, you know? I mean, you know. How have you stayed so sharp? Do you, is there secrets? Yeah. Do you have you, like a glass of wine a night or is there? No, you, you, every once in a while you smoke a joint. Hey. <laughs> Kyle, is this your favorite guest we've it ever had? just happened right now, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's legal, you know, here in California. Well, you've California, always been an advocate. Legal. I've always been an advocate. I think that- Every once in a while, what does that mean? Like once a week? No. Twice it, a, yeah, once a know, day? Yeah, no, not once a day. And never at work because, I mean, it right. does fly. But, you know, a couple of times a week, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's good advice. I like it, this. Because it takes, for me, I don't know if everybody reacts the same way. For me, it's relaxation. Yeah. And it somehow stimulates the brain. Okay. Who's the greatest fighter that never was, in your opinion? The greatest fighter. Who's the that guy never- that you always look at and you're like, man, that should have been the guy? Don Donald Curry. Donald Curry, wow. Donald Curry was a welterweight. I like Donald Curry. He was a great, great fighter. And he just went off the, the, you know, became a businessman, got involved in the business, and never really reached his true talent. So you think he was like a Sugar Ray, Roy Jones Jr. type of talent? Donald Curry was a Sugar Ray... Uh, Terrence Crawford kind of talent. Wow. Would you, would you at this point, I forgot to ask you this, would you have a super heavyweight division? Cause these guys have gotten so much bigger. Would you, would you go like 195 to 230 and then 230 yeah. and up? They have a cruiserweight division that goes up to 200. That pretty yeah. well. But would you have another one from like 200 to no, I don't 225? So. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you're going to get, uh, remember, uh, Wilder, Who's a big guy? Yeah, uh, I think his last fight was at two hundred ten pounds. Yeah, so you know that's less than Ali weighed. So I I I I think boxing is is good. I think uh, the uh, a lot of the heavyweights who are maybe smaller, uh, 
six one, six two, not six five and six six, can outperform uh, the big guys. I would I would keep it the way it was. Five judges? It's, no, three judges because five <laughs> judges you have you, you might end up with five incompetents rather than three. I'd rather have five. Why? I think it removes the risk of just having somebody who's a complete schmuck do the 118 to 108 thing that we're clearly the other guy wanted. It, it gives too much weight to if, a if, bad person. If you're picking from a pool of schmucks, if you go with five, you go with three, it's going to be the same. You think it even be, might, might even be more schmucky yeah, with more? I mean, I, I, I don't think five helps. I think you do three because you cover then the three sides of the ring. Yeah. And and that gives you a good perspective. Who what celebrity loved boxing the most out of all the famous people? Well who was the most legitimate famous celebrity boxing fan? Well, Mark Wahlberg is a big, big boxing fan. Okay. Uh Sinatra? Sinatra was a huge fan. As a matter of fact, uh I uh had a have a friend who ran, uh, who owned uh, uh, Sun City in South Africa. And we had arranged, I wanted to do a double header. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Sinatra to sing at the end. And Oh, I like that. And Mickey Rudin said, you'll never convince Sinatra. So we went up and we, we were staying, all staying at the St. Regis. And we went up and... Uh, Sinatra was sort of not really interested and so forth. He said, by the way, who's fighting? And I said, well, one fight was Duran and Davey Moore, and the other fight was Mancini and Kenny Bachner. He says, Mancini, Ray Mancini, he was in. (laughs) He was in. And he helped me with the commercial and everything. But unfortunately, two weeks before, Mancini broke his shoulder in training, so we called it off. And uh, I did uh, Duran and Davey Moore in Madison Square Garden, which sold out for That's the first fight. time since Ali and Fraser fought. And uh, Duran upset Davey Moore and made a new career for himself. So it all worked out at that particular point. But uh, Sinatra loved boxing, loved Ray Mancini. Uh, he really loved the sport. So Ali at his absolute peak. It's like Friday night in the hotel and he decides he likes one of the ladies there. Is there any person who has a better chance to maybe win over this young lady than Muhammad Ali at his peak? Is there a celebrity you've seen who would have been his biggest rival? He had no rival. So if he he looks at you, it's over. Yeah, but again, you have to understand Muhammad Ali. He was so into this black, Right, yeah. Isn't that he wouldn't have sex with any woman that was Caucasian. I remember once I was with him in Mexico and we had these women come. Emilio Escarga sent all these women in. I mean, all these great looking women. And I, I spent a half hour convincing him that they weren't white. They were Mexican. <laughs> but... It, but we, after a fight, after a fight, you'd go up to Ali's suite and you'd see 25 
or more of these women sitting around. Some were gorgeous, some were not. And I would go over and make like numbers in a bakery shop and give him numbers so Ali could call out the number and bring one in to his bedroom after another. And I asked him once, I said, Ali, you have all these beautiful women. What are you doing with these ugly women? He <laughs> says, because they appreciate it more. <laughs> uh, I, had, I mean, great thing. I mean, I never told you the Cleveland Williams story. No. Can I say things? Yeah. 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 Right. So remember, I'm, I, I've been in this business for a very short time. This is back in 1966, uh, 1966, when we go back to Houston to fight Cleveland Williams. In the Astrodome. In the Astrodome. And the morning of the fight, Ali calls me, Aaron, you got to come down. I got a real problem. So I go, go into his suite. I said, Ali, what's the problem? He said, last night, this beautiful fox came in and we were talking. And then she asked if she could sit on the bed and finally asked if she could take her clothes off. One thing led and to another. And she said, yeah, one thing led to another. She said, you could put it in, but <laughs> you don't have an orgasm because, you know, the fighters believed you had an orgasm. Yeah, yeah. It hurt you, hurt you. Ali said, but I couldn't control myself and I went off. And now I'm going to lose the fight because I've had sex the night before. Yeah. So I thought really quick, you know, asking me what to do. So I told him to call up room service and get 12 raw eggs and drink the egg. And don't screw around with Williams because your strength may be gone. Yeah. Go and take him out as soon as possible. So he eats the egg and he goes out and he knocks Williams out in the fourth round. And I come in the dressing room after the fight. He embraces me. He says, I owe my career. <laughs> <laughs> 12 raw eggs. 12 raw eggs. I feel like you have the advantage in the Don King rivalry these days. Well, You I'm, really have the upper hand. He's an older man. He's three months you're old. You're 87. He's months, well, he's three months old. I'm just saying, you're ahead in the scorecards right yeah. now. Uh, this is great. Thank you. My pleasure. Being I appreciate on. it. This I really, is really liked fun. It, Bill. All right. Thank you very much. All right. That's it for the BS podcast. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Don't forget to go to ziprecruiter.com slash BS. Don't forget about the rewatchables. We have Dave coming up probably Sunday night. Um, so check that out as well. Subscribe if you haven't subscribed already. Check out the ringer.com for all of our all star coverage. If anything crazy happens in Charlotte, Steph Curry, three point shootout, um, dunk contest. Who knows? We'll, we'll have it all. And uh, we'll be back next week in the BS Podcast. Until then. Bye.